On November 19, 1863, former Senator and Secretary of State Edward Everett was scheduled to deliver an address at the dedication of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg, where those who had fallen in the brutal battle some four months prior were laying in their final resting place. That speech by Mr. Everett was two hours long and has long since been lost to history. But what followed has not. President Abraham Lincoln took the podium and in under three minutes delivered what may well be the best known and best remembered speech ever delivered on American soil, the Gettysburg Address. In this address, President Lincoln captured with remarkable clarity the tragedy, honor, and dignity of the nearly 50,000 men who lost their lives on that bloody field. The Gettysburg Address captures something that is compelling to the human spirit, something that drives us, that is wired into our subconscious existence. That is the power of sacrifice. The power of giving up your comforts and your freedoms and indeed your very life for a cause that is greater than yourself. This theme fills the pages of the great stories and draws us in almost inexplicably. We ought not to be surprised by this. For the theme of sacrifice is not only central to the great stories, it is central to the great story. The Apostle Paul understood this, and in our text today, he brings us into his own journey of sacrifice and surrender for a cause that is greater than himself. If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we'll work our way all the way through verse 27 this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible of your own in a language that you can read and understand, consider that Bible our gift to you. Paul has spent chapter 8 dealing with the concept of Christian freedom in matters of conscience. He has used the cultural realities of marriage and of food to illustrate a larger spiritual reality summarized like this. Love limits liberty. Paul's point in chapter 8 is that the Christian must be so committed to the good of others that they will sacrifice whatever is necessary in order to accomplish that good. Whether it's giving up marriage or meat, Paul is clear, you must not hinder one another. In the pursuit of God, you must not be the iceberg that makes shipwreck of someone else's faith. Instead, according to Paul, you must be all things to all men so that by all means you might win some. In order to bring this concept home, Paul breaks one of the cardinal rules of preaching and pastoral ministry by using himself as an illustration. 
Today we will consider all of 1 Corinthians 9 as Paul weaves together an argument for his own freedom and then contrasts that freedom with his willful choice to surrender his freedom for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the glory of God. He uses his own testimony then as evidence of the truth and the practicality of love-limiting freedom. Or excuse me, freedom-limiting love. We will consider our text today under two major headings with some subheadings thrown underneath. The first heading comes from verses 1 through 18, and I have labeled this heading Paul's freedom. In these verses, Paul is going to prove three different ways that he has every right, every authority, and all the freedom to operate within the limits of his conscience and pretty much do whatever he wants within those limitations. But then beginning in verse 19, Paul shocks us by declaring that he willfully surrenders every right, every freedom, every ounce of authority that he has for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. Paul concludes this section and really concludes this joint venture of both chapter 8 and chapter 9 with an exhortation to self-discipline and self-control, being willing to give up whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to gain the prize. We begin then with Paul's freedom. Paul makes three logical arguments for his freedom. We will see that the specific issue in which Paul was seeking to prove himself to be free here in these early verses is whether or not ministers should be paid by their congregations for their labor in the ministry. This also seems to be connected to the larger issue of Paul's apostolic authority in general, which would become even more pronounced and more pressing for Paul when he writes to the Corinthians again in 2 Corinthians. The argument seems to be that since Paul has limited his liberty regarding what he eats, right? You go back to chapter 8, verse 13, that Paul's liberty in other areas must therefore also be limited. And if Paul's liberty is limited, then his authority as an apostle must be limited. Whatever the case, contextually, for Paul's writing specifically about this issue of freedom and authority to take a salary, as it were, from his church, Paul is burdened to demonstrate that he certainly is free, he certainly is authoritative, and he certainly has every right afforded to the apostles as an apostle himself. Let's dig into these three arguments. We're going to begin in verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is Paul's argument from identity. This is an argument that he is making just from who he is as a person and, who, and, and how he is related to this Corinthian church. Paul flings the, fir, the first four of like, I don't know, dozens of rhetorical questions at the Corinthians in these opening verses. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? These questions regard his freedom, his apostleship, his relationship with Christ, and his relationship with the Corinthians as a church. Paul is demonstrating then right off the bat that the Corinthians have no business 
questioning his freedom. No business questioning his authority. He is invested with all the liberties in Christ with which Christ has made his people free. He is able to regulate his conduct according to his own convictions of what is right, free from obligation to conform to the opinions and prejudices of men. More than this, Paul is also an apostle. He's not just a Christian. He doesn't just have the rights of the Christian. Paul is also an apostle. He has the rights of an apostle. Those rights given to him as a commissioned herald of God to the world. And even more than this, Paul was an eyewitness of Christ himself. And even on top of that, the Corinthians themselves were evidence of Paul's faithful apostolic ministry. Paul's argument for his freedom and authority from his identity is simple. I am a Christian. I am an apostle. I am an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And you yourselves, by your very existence as a church, are evidence that I am all of these things. If Paul is not a Christian, an apostle, and an eyewitness of the risen Christ, the Corinthian church does not even exist. That is Paul's argument from identity. Moving into verses 3 through 7, Paul says this, My defense to those who examine me is this, Do we not have authority to eat and drink? Do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have authority to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Or who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? In these verses, Paul is now making an argument from analogy. Paul says that he has the freedom to eat and drink and get married and do all of these things, things, mind you, that the Scripture neither expressly commands or forbids. And he is able to do this because all of the other apostles have the same authority. Look at verse 5. Do we not have the authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas being the Greek name of Peter. The implication here is that all of the other apostles, all of the other leaders in the early church had taken wives. They had gotten married. They're eating and drinking. They're doing all of these things that apostles are free to do. Paul, however, had not. Paul wasn't eating meat, according to 8.13. Paul wasn't married, according to chapter 7. And because of those things, the Corinthians are then assuming that Paul somehow has less authority than the rest of the apostles, less authority than Peter. Paul's argument from analogy, then, is this. If Peter and the apostles can eat and drink and get married, so can I. I have every right, I have every authority, I have every freedom to do these things. And then in verse 6, Paul actually expands the argument beyond just the, the issues of meat and marriage. Adding in a third M, meat, marriage, and money. 
This is really the question of bivocational ministry versus vocational ministry. In other words, should a pastor work another job in order to not be a financial burden to his church, or that's bivocational or vocational, should a pastor take a salary for his ministry and take that salary from the church? That's the question. Verse six, or do only Barnabas and I not have authority to refrain from working? In other words, should a minister of the gospel have to work a second job in order to support his ministry, or should the church compensate him for his efforts in the ministry to such a degree that he can support himself and his family? That is the question that Paul is asking. Are you going to make me work outside the church on top of my work inside the church? Paul seems to be asking this question in light of a familiar context. It would seem that the Corinthians had some sort of qualm, some sort of concern, some sort of issue with Paul's freedom and authority to be compensated by the church for his labors and the gospel on their behalf. We don't know exactly why the Corinthians seem to have this problem, but we might deduce that maybe some of the weaker brothers that were discussed in chapter 7 and chapter 8, maybe they take issue with the idea of Paul taking money from the ministry being paid by the church because it reminded them of temple prostitutes making money for their quote-unquote divine service. Or perhaps these Corinthians were reminded of Simon the magician who tried to leverage the message of the gospel and its accompanying miracles for financial gain. And we see that in our own day. Where we're like, hmm, does this guy just want to be in the ministry so that he can only work one day a week? Roll my eyes clear through the back of my head on that one and make money off of the goodwill of people in the church. We face that same question today, and Paul is arguing here then that, yeah, absolutely, a faithful pastor, a faithful minister like Paul, ought to be able to support himself and his family without having to work. Purely based off of the generosity of the church. So this is the question. Should a godly pastor take a salary? In verse 7, Paul answers the question rhetorically by asking three more questions. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? Does anyone go serve in the army just as a volunteer? No compensation. Does anyone plant a vineyard and not grab some of the fruit of the vine as they cultivate it? Do shepherds not drink the milk and eat the meat of the sheep that are in their care? These three rhetorical questions lead Paul to his third argument, an argument from the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 8. Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does the law not also say these things? 
For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing out the grain. Is God merely concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. So now in verse 8, Paul is asking, does the law agree with my assertion that a faithful pastor ought to have the right to take a salary from his church? Does the law agree with Paul? In verse 9, he proves it. He says, yes, the law agrees with me. Moses agrees with my assertion that a faithful pastor ought to be able to take a salary from his church. What's interesting about this is that Paul goes to the last passage you would expect in trying to prove this point about a pastor's salary. You would expect Paul to go to the numerous passages in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that speak of how the nation of Israel is supposed to share their sacrificial meals with the priests that help them sacrifice them. That makes a lot more sense. And we, it's, it's much easier, I think, for us to understand conceptually that a pastor in the New Covenant and a priest in the Old Covenant have some parallels as worship leaders and as those who administer the blessings of God to the people of God. And Paul doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to an obscure command about an oxen. Do not muzzle the ox while it's threshing out the grain. Just by way of sidebar here, Paul does this, according to verses 9 and 10, to demonstrate an important principle about how he read the Bible and how we are to read the Bible. And that principle is this. I've said this before. The literal interpretation, in other words, the interpretation that the author intended us to come to, is not always the natural interpretation. Paul says it explicitly. This isn't just about oxen. There are some people out there who say this is only about oxen. It has nothing to do with pastors. And Paul says it's about oxen, but it also has everything to do with pastors. Paul demonstrates that God intended Moses' command about oxen to not merely be about animals, but to be about fair compensation for all types of work, including the work of the ministry. Paul's identity validates his freedom and authority. The existence and the lives of the other apostles validate Paul's freedom and authority. And the Old Testament validates Paul's freedom and authority to be compensated for the work of the ministry. Verses 11 through 14 provide a summary of what Paul is trying to say here. And this is really the, the heart of this first point. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. 
Here's the blazing center, verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. More rhetorical questions from Paul here in verses 11 down through 14. Those who sow spiritual things have a right, according to the scriptures, to reap material things. Priests eat the sacred food of the temple. Altar attendants eat the meat sacrificed on the altar. Those who minister ought to be able to support themselves by their ministry. Verse 14 brings it all home in one simple and succinct phrase. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Unless, in, in, in case it was not abundantly clear up until this point, from the pen of the Apostle Paul, a, faith, a faithful pastor must be able to take his living from his ministry of the gospel. Those who proclaim the gospel The Lord has directed to get their living from the gospel. Before we move on to Paul's surrender, I want to press home Paul's big takeaway here. Paul's main point. Those who proclaim the gospel must get their living from the gospel. In other words, pastors in our day have every right to a salary from the churches that they serve. Now, I want to make clear but I acknowledge and understand that there are those who abuse this right, who abuse this privilege, who abuse this freedom. There are charlatans who take advantage of churches and of ministries for sordid gain. And they can and do damage the ministries of godly men by their abuses. But Paul is likewise clear. Godly men carrying out biblical ministry are worthy of their wages. Now, as someone who is striving to be a godly man carrying out a biblical ministry, I recognize the potential of discomfort at the idea of me up here preaching a sermon to you in which I declare that I have a right to take a salary from you. I recognize the tension and the irony there but discomfort or awkwardness are no excuse to not preach the whole counsel of god so i urge you to simply think this morning about how you might meet the needs of your pastors i confess before you today with all humility that i am a man just like you with needs, just like you. God's calling then upon each of your lives as members of this church cannot be any clearer. Meet the needs of your pastors. Now, this does not necessarily mean that I am asking you to throw more money in the offering box at the back or send me a card with cash inside, though those things are good and well and appreciated when they happen. And I know I speak for Scott when I say thank you for those, thank you to those of you who meet our needs in those ways. 
But your pastors have other needs, other wants, other desires. Sometimes what we need is simply a reminder that we are being prayed for. If I can be so bold as to name names from the pulpit this morning, my dear sister, Danette, prayed for me publicly on Thursday night during our prayer meeting. I cannot put a price tag on the encouragement that I received sitting right here hearing Danette pray for me. I can't. You could send me a million dollars in the mail and it would not come close to what I gained from knowing, having that confidence that I am being brought before the throne of grace. Sometimes pastors just need to know that our labors and our teaching is making a difference in somebody's life. That somebody sees Jesus more clearly, follows him more nearly, loves him more dearly because of the things that we do week in and week out, Sunday after Sunday, Thursday after Thursday, and laboring in the word and bringing it to you. Paul's command is simple here in these opening 14 verses here. Take care of your pastor. Pastors, meet your spiritual needs in Christ, so take opportunity likewise to meet their material needs. Paul, along with all ministers everywhere, have the freedom and the authority and the right, according to the word of God, to take a salary and to be compensated according to their labor in the gospel. But Paul does something quite unbelievable in verse 15. He says, but I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have anyone make my boast an empty one. For if I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? that when I proclaim the gospel, I may offer it without charge so as to not make full use of my authority in the gospel. Paul has all the freedom, all the authority, all the right under the sun to command a salary and he can prove it from his identity, from analogy and from the scriptures itself, yet he does not engage those rights. He does not call in that favor. Instead, Paul surrenders his freedom. He surrenders his authority. He surrenders his rights. Paul's statement is dramatic, but it would seem that Paul means us to take this very naturally. He means us to take it very literally. For him, it would be better to die than to hinder the ministry of the gospel. It would be better for Paul to die than to place a stumbling block before someone in their faith. What this meant for Paul practically was that he worked with his hands for a living while proclaiming the gospel free of charge. We all know that Paul was a master craftsman, a tent maker. And it would seem that he was well acquainted with manual labor. Paul's hands were covered with the calluses of rough work so that his gospel ministry could be as unhindered as possible. Paul knew the bone tiredness of brutal days working from before the sun came up until after it went down. 
a sore back and sore knees were the norm for Paul. We might say in the vernacular that Paul was on his daily grind. And yet we know that Paul counted this all joy for the sake of knowing Christ and making him known. It's interesting how that works. I speak to you this morning from my own experience. There is a unique joy in knowing that my work outside the church removes burdens and removes obstacles from my ministry inside the church. Paul knew that joy. Paul knew that glory, and he would rather die than be deprived of it, despite the fact that he had every reason, every right, every freedom. He had all authority to leave the scrapers and the awls and the tool bag, remove his hands from the loom, and never thread a needle again. He could have done that. Paul could have left it all behind and said, I need you to pay me to be your pastor. He could have done that. He had every right to do it, and he can prove it from the scriptures, but he did not do it. He loved the Corinthians too much. He loved the gospel too much and was unwilling to put any hindrance in front of it. What's truly remarkable about this is that Paul actually counted it a privilege to be able to do this. That's what, that's what he means in verse 17. For if I do it voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. It's a tough verse to translate and understand, but what Paul means here is that he doesn't have to preach the gospel without charge, but he does it anyway because of the joy and the gladness and the glory that he obtains from being a minister of the gospel, completely unhindered and completely unlimited. The reward of Paul's surrender is that the gospel is unhindered. What's the outcome of Paul's surrender in verses 19 through 23. It's an unlimited gospel. Paul says this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. And to the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. So I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a partaker of it. The outcome of Paul's surrender is that limits are removed from the gospel. The locus of this section comes at the end of verse 22. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. For Paul, the goal is always to remove every obstacle and every stumbling block from before others so that they might be receptive to the gospel. His desire is to be inoffensive so that the gospel alone would offend his hearers. In Japan, it is considered rude and unclean to come into the house with your shoes on. So if you were trying to share the gospel with a Japanese person in, your, in their home, take your shoes off. To the Japanese, become Japanese so that you might win 
the Japanese. In traditional Italian homes, it is considered rude and offensive to not eat the food that will be offered to you. And trust me, it's a lot of food. So if you want to win Italians, you want to know what you're going to have to give up? Your diet. Leave it at the door. Eat a lot. Eat hearty. Become as an Italian to the Italians so that you might win the Italians. In many countries in the Middle East where there's a strong Muslim influence, women are not allowed to show their hair and must wear what is called a hijab, a head covering. If you were a Christian woman trying to share the gospel with a Muslim person, place no obstacle before the gospel and cover your head. This is what Paul meant by becoming all things to all people so that by all means he might win some. Paul refused to limit the gospel by his personal preferences and his personal opinions. He refused to limit the gospel by doing things or not doing things that might cause offense to the person he was trying to reach. Paul refused to limit the gospel and he refused to limit his opportunities for the sake of his cultural comfort. Everything he did, he did for the sake of the gospel so that he might become, verse 23, a fellow partaker in it. That brings us to verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore I run in such a way, not as without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul here gives us the reason for his surrender. Why is he willing to give all of this up? Why is he willing to discipline himself? Why is he willing to exercise such massive levels of self-control? Because he looks forward to that glorious and incorruptible crown to be inherited in that last day when he hears, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul spends four verses here extolling the stoic virtues of discipline, self-control, and temperance. They seem a little bit disconnected here. It's a strange way to end the section. So why does Paul take it this way? Well, self-control and discipline might be described as the art and science of saying no. It's the act of putting aside a good thing now so that you can get a better thing later. For Paul, the analogy is sports. An athlete puts aside sugar and carbs and soda and junk food. Those things taste good and they feel good in the moment, but they do not serve the greater cause of victory. That is self-control. That is discipline. 
A soldier puts aside mental and emotional distractions and girds up the loins of his mind in order that he may be fully focused on the battle at hand. He leaves behind the comfort of his home to go overseas. He gives his time and his energy and perhaps even his life for a cause greater than himself. And this is what Paul did. He exercised discipline. He exercised self-control with his rights so that he might gain a greater reward. He said no to his freedom now so that he could say yes to a greater reward of glory in the future. The first being the reward of the fruit of gospel ministry in the form of maximally saved and sanctified people. And the second, an even more long-term reward, is the reward of participation in imperishable glory at the end of his race, receiving his incorruptible crown. Paul was free to eat. He was free to drink. He was free to marry. He was free to take a salary for his labors in the gospel, and he did none of these things. Paul exercised discipline. He exercised self-control. He said no to four good things, four things that the scripture allows and even encourages. And yet what did he do? He said no so that he could reach the maximum number of people with the gospel. Let me illustrate this. If you are so obsessed with your, with your diet, okay, I must eat this, I must not eat that, your lifestyle, you know, you know, some carnivore diet person, I'm not going to go, you know, wherever because there might be bread there. What if there's somebody where the bread is that needs to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Eat the bread, dude. Drink. This is a tough one, right? Pastor, or any Christian, really, at a restaurant, having a drink, that kind of drink. I'm not talking about a soda. And maybe there's a person there who has battled alcoholism in their family for generations. That person might be there ready and waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they can't hear it from you because you've got an old-fashioned in your hand. Marriage. This one's actually really easy. If you're married in the room, you know that your marriage takes time. And if you're like, my marriage takes time? What does that mean? Come talk to me afterwards. We need to do some counseling. <laughs> Your marriage takes time. It requires energy. It requires all of these things from you. you and, and I speak from personal experience. Up until two years ago, when Sarah and I got married, I had all the time in the world to go do ministry stuff. I could spend my evenings doing whatever I wanted to do. I had a whole lot of freedom to go do gospel ministry. And then Sarah and I got married, and now I have a responsibility to my wife to make sure that she is cared for. And what does that do? That takes time and energy away that might otherwise be devoted 
the work of the ministry. And that's why Paul says, hey, for some of us, we need to give up marriage, a good thing, a gift, a grace of God. We need to give it up. Why? So that we have more time to preach the gospel, more time to disciple, more time to invest in the life of the local church. That was Paul's whole testimony. Just go back to chapter seven, where we've been the last couple of weeks. Salary, that one's really, really easy. I'm going to speak to you from personal experience. We just had a members meeting about the budget a couple weeks ago. I'll tell you right now, if I had to take a full salary from West Hills Church, the church couldn't afford to have both me and Scott here. That's just how it works. If you were part of that members meeting with the budget, you know how this works. If you have the ability the privilege, the blessing, and, and I understand it's such a great blessing and privilege to not have to take a full salary from a church because I have my other job, that I can be here every Sunday, week in and week out, and, and be blessed by being part of West Hills Church. And that's, for Paul, something that's easy to give up, right? If you, if you do the hard work of making money outside the church, now you open an, a whole range of possibilities. Guess what? I grew up in a little tiny town in Colorado with a little tiny church, and that church could barely afford to pay my dad. Barely, right? We, we squeaked by. By God's grace, we made it. We never missed a meal, and we never missed a car payment and everything else. By God's grace. But let me tell you, there are hundreds of small churches out there that are scrapping clawing to find a pastor who can really feed their souls. And there are hundreds of pastors out there that might be able to go be part of that church. But they're like, oh, I have to make my living from the gospel. And so they close themselves off to what Paul is talking about here, opportunities. Their, their need, and it's, even a, it's not even just a need, it's a right. Paul says it here, it's a right to take a salary from the churches that you're ministering to. But exercising that right may limit your opportunities, may limit your effectiveness, may limit the places that you can go for God and have an impact for the gospel and for the kingdom in this world. Paul surrenders those things. He gives them up so that he might be maximally effective in the work of the ministry. Paul's glory and Paul's joy was the opportunity to proclaim the glory of God, the sickness of sin, the grace of Christ, and the freedom that comes in faith. Paul's singular purpose was to proclaim Christ and him crucified and to call all men everywhere to confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead and be saved. This purpose was so singular that he laid aside every weight, every hindrance, every stumbling block, every limitation. He laid aside the meat. He laid aside the drink. He laid aside marriage. He laid aside money so that he might reach the maximum number of people with this glorious message. For Paul, nothing was so important that he would allow it to come between him and an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, an opportunity to disciple them and to build them up in the faith. No comfort, no cultural preference, no dietary preference, no theological opinion. For Paul, it was all expendable in the service of the king. 
Nothing was so important that it would come between him and the opportunity to proclaim Christ and him crucified and calling all men to repent and believe upon him. A single question then remains for each of us today in light of who Paul is, what Paul does, and the contrast between his freedom and his surrender. One question. What are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? What comforts, what traditions, what preferences, what financial stability are we willing to sacrifice so that we might be the instrument in the Redeemer's hands to bring someone to salvation? What are you willing to sacrifice? Paul placed no obstacle, no hindrance, no stumbling block before those to whom he preached. He refused to hinder the gospel. He refused to limit it by his own preferences and opinions. Will you do the same?